welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. This is Brandy Bro-Scully. I'm one of the chief surgery residents at Baylor College of Medicine. I'm here with Dr. Jeffrey Heinley and Dr. George Mallory at Texas Children's Hospital to discuss pediatric lung transplantation. Dr. Heinley is an associate professor of surgery and pediatrics in the Division of Congenital Heart Surgery at Baylor College of Medicine and the associate chief of congenital heart surgery at Texas Children's Hospital. He is the surgical director of heart and lung transplant and holds the Brad and Melissa Juno Endowed Chair at Texas Children's Hospital. Dr. George Mallory is a professor of pediatrics and pulmonary medicine at Baylor College of Medicine and is the medical director of the Texas Children's Hospital Lung Transplant Program, which he founded in 2002. The program has become the most active in the world with 191 lung transplants performed. We'll start with Dr. Mallory. What are the most common indications for lung transplant that you see, and what do these patients' clinical pictures look like leading up to their initial transplant evaluation? Thank you, Brandy, um, for the question and the opportunity to participate in this podcast. We see a wide variety of um, often uh, rare uh, lung diseases leading to uh, lung transplantation. It's easiest to talk about the school age and adolescent patients uh, in whom cystic fibrosis and variations of pulmonary hypertension are the dominant uh, etiologies that lead to end-stage lung disease and candidacy for lung transplantation. In the younger age group, which uh, we have taken on uh, very seriously, uh, it's really a potpourri of diseases ranging from surfactant uh, dysfunction disorders Uh, bronchiolitis obliterans, uh, forms of pulmonary fibrosis. In terms of uh, clinical pictures, um, um, over the course of our uh, 15 years uh, uh, that the program has been present, we uh, are seeing progressively sicker patients, particularly among the younger patients. They're more likely to be hospitalized at the time that we transplant them than in the past. We do not uh, generally uh, accept um, uh, cystic fibrosis patients on the ventilator. We have had a small number of very sick patients on VV ECMO uh, before transplant. Uh, But many of of the infants and younger children have enough respiratory insufficiency or oxygen needs that they uh, may be confined to the hospital, usually in one of our intensive care units. It it really varies, and uh, the challenge is uh, to uh, evaluate and list patients in a timely fashion so that uh, uh, we can minimize uh, deaths on the wait list. What does the preoperative workup for pediatric lung transplant include? And what are the important exclusion criteria that would prohibit lung transplantation? Most of our patients will uh, uh, come from outside of Texas, uh, and we try to arrange for an outpatient evaluation, which lasts uh, three to five days. Uh, We do a um, comprehensive um, array of imaging, 
uh, and functional studies, including pulmonary function testing in the older patients, uh, some extensive blood work looking at uh, a status of viral serologies, um, look for um, sensitization to HLA antigens, and then have members of our multidisciplinary team um, who range from uh, child life and psychology and social work through uh, physical therapy, uh, uh, nurses, um, physicians. Brandy, um, I'll just back up a little bit, and I guess our evaluation starts with those patients who we're thinking about for transplant are those that have severe pulmonary parenchymal or vascular disease that cannot be treated uh, either surgically or medically, that they don't have another option. And so part of our evaluation is, are there other options for these patients um, other than transplant that will allow them to keep their own lungs but still uh, have a uh, good quality and length of life? And I think that's our first step in the evaluation, probably the one that we deal with the most. Um, in general, these um, kids that we're considering for transplant are those that don't have other options that we believe if you don't do anything they'll be dead within a year or two um, without a transplant uh, or the, um, their quality of life is so poor that they cannot do really daily activities of living what you and I would consider pretty basic basic things and so that's that's our evaluation really starts with that and figuring out are there, and we see a lot of patients who get referred to us that uh, really with some intensive care and nutrition and other um, interventions, we actually can uh, avoid or delay transplant, and I think that's part of our job too, but you want to select the right patients for transplant. Uh, Dr. Heinle, um, why don't you address the, the exclusion criteria um, uh, from your point of view? Sure. There are, from a surgical point of view, I, I guess the reality is there's very few technical problems that will prevent you from doing a transplant, although there are some. Like So from the surgeon's point of view, when we're looking at these kids, really the question is a couple. One is, technically, can you do the transplant? Are there any anatomic uh, issues that are going to prevent you from doing that, or has this patient have had other extensive operations uh, that may prevent that. For instance, um, it's very difficult for us to do a lung transplant in someone who's had a talc pleurodesis uh, because there's no pleural space. It's um, not an absolute contraindication, but all these sorts of things get weighed into it. What's the previous operations have been had in the pleural space or in the mediastinum? What's their underlying um, pathology? So. There are some surgical issues. Most of them we can get around, but occasionally there are some true surgical contraindications where we can't physically transplant that. Outside of the technical issues, the other concern is, are, are these patients in good enough shape to survive a big operation, come through the operation, and have a reasonable expectation that they're going to make it through the hospitalization? Um, and so you know, their physiologic um, status going into the, into the transplant. There, you know, there are lists of contraindications. I guess George and I would feel most of those are relative contraindications. Many of them 
um, you can deal with, but there are some. If you have an active hepatitis C or B or HIV, those patients may not be good candidates for transplantation, and um, certainly there are medical issues such as those. I think the big picture for us is, though, having a patient that's in uh, good physiologic shape going in, into the operation that technically we can actually perform the operation. Uh, on the medical um, side of things, um, there are a couple of infections that we would consider strong contraindication or absolute contraindications. Burkholderia sinocepatia, which is the uh, species that is um, Unfortunately, very prevalent in uh, Toronto, um, we believe the outcomes are not good enough to justify uh, transplantation. Other Burkholderia species we've taken on, and although there have been some infectious complications, we've been able to, to manage them. Uh, Smear-positive non-tuberculous mycobacteria would also be um, a contraindication. Um, let me just address uh, two kind of thorny issues, which is what I call resourcefulness of the family and resources. Uh, it ends up that virtually every um, um, American citizen has access uh, today to um, insurance that will um, be able to support uh, lung transplantation in our institution. There are a couple of uh, southern states whose Medicaid programs um, historically have not been able to offer um, um, a suitable contract for us to be able to accept them. Uh, but as we all know, the health um, care uh, situation is quite uncertain at the present time. Resourcefulness really relates to uh, what a, a family can mobilize um, if, a, if a child, a sick child, is going to come from another state, they need to re relocate uh, to Houston with a parent. Uh, the hospital um, is, is not capable of providing that, so the family or their insurer needs to provide for that. And um, uh, the, the family needs to be committed to uh, following through, so there needs to be a, a proven record of adherence uh, they need to be able to um, trust the, the transplant program, and we need a follow-up program, um, a commitment to a follow-up program. These, these kids will have to come back repeatedly over time. Uh, we know that travel expenses are not um, um, insignificant, uh, and so these are all weighed, and we, we, we encourage families to raise funds um, if, if they need to. Uh, but the reality is there are some families with many children, um, a single parent, um, meager resources <clears throat> who are just not going to be able to, um, uh, to pull this off. And we, uh, we're sympathetic, but uh, uh, we don't hesitate to say uh, this is not uh, suitable. Dr. Heinle, what are the operative steps for a lung transplant? And can you share any tips or common pitfalls? The interesting thing about transplant is that um, you have two operations going on at the same time. There is a donor procurement, 
um, and a recipient operation and there's a lot of coordination that goes on between those two particularly because the donor procurements it's usually multiple institutions so we're starting hours and hours before the actual operation trying to coordinate um, the donor procurement with our recipient operation and we as in most centers will actually send a procurement team from our institution um, to retrieve the organs and um, that's an important team people think you just go out and get the lungs and come back it's not it's not that easy and what we found uh, early in our experience and paid a lot of attention to is having good quality lungs come to you that are procured well um, and um, sort of with a uniform approach to procurement um, the technical aspect of sewing in the lung is just that, it's technical. Um, but the outcomes, I believe, have a lot to do with the organ you get, the preservation of the organ, and how you care for that organ. So our procurement team, we put a lot of um, faith and a lot of emphasis on um, getting these organs for us in good shape. And, and, and for that team, their job is to evaluate the information we've been given, evaluate the um, actual lung, visually look at the lung, do a bronchoscopy, check blood work, all that is happening at the, at the donor institution. Of course, um, very important, and we rely on them too for ABO verification, um, making sure that um, the, there's ABO compatibility uh, between the organs and there is communication between the donor team uh, and the implantation team uh, throughout the process. But that team will uh, go out for the procurement at the same time that we have our recipient uh, operation beginning. And actually, we'll move our recipient into the operating room uh, an hour or two before the donor operation so that our patient um, is ready to go. Uh, and we actually begin the recipient operation before the donor organs are even back uh, in our operating suite. Uh, important for us is limiting the amount of ischemic time and we do that by trying to um, coordinate between the two teams and actually beginning the operation here. The recipient operation, um, the approach to the lungs in kids, we're almost always doing bilateral lung training that. Uh, so on the donor side we want two good good quality lungs. If one of the lungs is, is clearly bad we won't uh, entertain those organs. Um, on the recipient side, since we're doing bilateral transplants, we have to have access to both pleural spaces. Um, and that can be done either through a sternotomy incision, or I prefer a bilateral thoracosternotomy incision or a clamshell incision, where we do bilateral thoracotomies. We come across the sternum uh, and euphemistically called the clamshell because we can spread the chest open. But that gives us good access to the mediastinum and to both plural spaces um, to be able to do these operations. We uh, do all of our operations on cardiopulmonary bypass. <clears throat> so this is a little different than uh, many of the adult programs who will do um, bilateral sequential transplants without bypass or without ECMO support but we anticipate all our children um, because of issues with the airway, single lung ventilation, uh, we're doing double lung transplants, we put all these patients on cardiopulmonary bypass and do our transplants on bypass. Um, I think in the big picture for us it's being very meticulous with the operation even during the 
um, donor uh, pneumonectomies so that we achieve hemostasis in the mediastinum and in the hilum uh, throughout the operation because postoperative bleeding can be a real issue in these patients and we try to avoid massive blood transfusions for bleeding at the end. And of course, on cardiopulmonary bypass, we're anticoagulated, so very meticulous about uh, the hemostasis. Um, but once we've um, uh, done our thoracosternotomy and uh, get on bypass, um, then the, the first step is the bilateral recipient pneumonectomies. And um, I do bilateral sequential lung transplantations, and I will take the, the lungs out uh, sequentially. Uh, we do that by uh, snaring the main pulmonary artery, dividing the pulmonary artery distally. We divide the uh, pulmonary veins through a staple line, uh, and then eventually we'll divide the bronchus. So once we're on cardiopulmonary bypass, we'll stop ventilation. We'll actually aspirate secretions and put antibiotics in the airway. Um, trying to avoid any contamination uh, of the pleural spaces or the mediastinum from the airway. Um, when we've heard that the donor lungs are in good shape, they're on their way, um, then uh, we'll begin the, um, the pneumonectomies. And as I said, we'll divide the pulmonary arteries, divide the pulmonary veins, and divide the main bronchus uh, on both sides. So we're on bypass, there's no lungs in either pleural space, get hemostasis. We generally irrigate um, the pleural spaces because we're, we're very concerned about infection and any uh, soiling of the pleural spaces. Uh, and then uh, that will uh, have us prepared for the uh, implantation. When the uh, lungs come back to us, they will come in a, in a block, there will be a, um, main uh, short main pulmonary artery into the branch pulmonary arteries uh, we bring uh, the distal segment of the trachea with both bronchi uh, bronchus back with us uh, and the uh, uh, left atrial uh, cuff with the pulmonary veins and on the uh, operating and of course i guess i should mention also the procurement of the lungs is very important also um, and we take great care while we're doing that to preserve the lungs, get preservative solution into both uh, both lungs, cool these lungs down. Uh, we found that a retrograde perfusion um, in the pulmonary veins is very important, and it's, it's pretty amazing when you're when you're doing that. You put retrograde uh, preservative solution in the pulmonary veins, and you'll see thrombus and debris coming out the MPA. Uh, and so we think that's an important part of the preservation. But those lungs then will um, be uh, preserved, cold preservative solution will come back uh, in ice. When they come back in the operating room, we again confirm the ABO um, compatibility, and then we'll bring those organs on the operating room table and we pre prepare, if you're doing bilateral sequential, we'll prepare uh, the two lungs separately. So we'll have a bronchus, uh, a, a pulmonary artery and the uh, pulmonary veins coming into a small left atrial cuff. And then we will implant those sequentially. Uh, we're keeping the lungs cold. They're not perfused while we're doing this, so we keep them cold during the implantation. And we will uh, sew the bronchus. Uh, we'll do one lung at a time, sew the bronchus in first, um, and then the uh, pulmonary uh, venous cuff, and then the uh, pulmonary artery cuff on one side, we'll pack that lung in ice, and then we'll go to the other side, and in a similar fashion, uh, put the other lung in. 
um, when we're done with the uh, bronchial anastomosis, our anesthesia colleagues or pulmonary colleagues will come to the OR, do bronchoscopy, clear the airway of secretions, confirm that the uh, airways are widely patent. Um, and during this time, during the final anastomosis, these patients are rewarmed on bypass. We start our um, inotropic agents and our we think coming off bypass is also important for these lungs too because the reperfusion period um, when these lungs go from being cold and having no flow to then being reperfused there is the potential for reperfusion injury and uh, we have developed uh, a protocol that we use and are pretty uh, adherent to where um, we try not to overinflate the lungs or use high pressures. Barotrauma is an important uh, issue in these lungs, so the anesthesia uh, is very uh, cognizant of that and tries to avoid high airway pressures. We start uh, inotropic and vasopressor agents on our uh, kids to um, help us with the blood pressure so that we avoid giving large uh, volume infusions as we're coming off pump. We think volume and a lot of fluid is bad for the lungs. Uh, and we try to avoid a high FiO2s. We'll limit our FiO2 um, to 50% or less um, because of potential oxygen-free radicals and a concern for reperfusion injury with high oxygen levels. And then we generally wean from bypass over about 10 to 15 minutes, so we don't just suddenly come off bypass, throw all the flow at the lungs and expect them to work. We will take some time to wean off bypass slowly, avoid uh, high pressure in the lungs, high flow to the lungs, um, and assess their function as we're coming off uh, cardiopulmonary bypass. Um, and then just uh, most of these, um, well, all of our patients will put on prostaglandin infusion uh, to help with uh, perfusion in the lungs. We also fairly routinely use inhaled nitric oxide, uh, one for the pulmonary vasodilation, but also it seems to improve the VQ mismatch in these lungs um, and helps you avoid high oxygen pressures or uh, really trying to uh, beat up the lungs uh, to get them to work. So uh, pretty routine, we'll do prostaglandins, vasopressors, inhaled nitric oxide, and a slow wean. What does the post-operative course look like for these patients? What are some important considerations for their management, and are there any specific complications to look out for? Um, this uh, uh, area, the post-operative course, is uh, a very intense time. Um, the family is very emotional. The patient is critically ill. Um, so communication uh, among um, stakeholders is very important. So it begins when the patient comes out of the operating room, uh, the anesthesiologist, the surgeon, uh, the pulmonologist, and the critical care physician um, so four different groups um, are there at the bedside uh, uh, to hear the details of uh, the operation and uh, the most important updates as to um, gas exchange, uh, ventilator settings, um, and particularly uh, pressors that have been uh, needed. Uh, we then come up with a, uh, um, a plan which uh, usually involves um, a bronchoscopy within the first 12 to 24 hours followed uh, if graft function is suitable uh, by early extubation. Um, this is a time where uh, communication is very important. Um, whether the, the chest tubes are um, uh, putting out um, uh, significant am amounts of blood, whether there's any air leak, um, uh, the um, 
cardiopulmonary situation, particularly in uh, the pulmonary hypertension patients. Uh, but we like to move along uh, fairly quickly. Um, uh, the antibiotic uh, regimen has been uh, set preoperatively. Um, uh, we now have um, mastered the, um, the problem of um, um, penetrating the parallel universe of the anesthesiologist by a very clear, color-coded um, communication of antimicrobial approaches. And that's one of the roles of the early bronchoscopy is to get a new bronchoalveolar lavage uh, specimen. Uh, we do blood cultures on admission to the ICU, and about 20% of the time those blood cultures are positive, usually for one of the um, resident uh, uh, pathogens in our cystic fibrosis patients. Um, we uh, try to get the patients uh, out of bed, um, try to get their GI tracts working, uh, converting intravenous medications to oral medications. Um, we begin education of the patient and family uh, early on, and um, uh, my recommendation to the parents uh, during this um, time is to keep their seatbelts on. We have to um, watch out. Uh, there are a whole variety of complications that can occur early on, and uh, not being surprised um, and being ready to intervene is really kind of critical. From a surgical perspective, Jeff, um, yeah. what do you look for? Sure, there. Um, you know, these uh, these are long operations. Um, some of it is just the coordinating and the time that they're in the OR, waiting for the uh, donor organs. But some of it is they're actually long operations. You're on bypass um, during this time, and so they have long bypass runs, long operations. So we manage all these patients in the cardiovascular intensive care unit afterwards. We feel this is the best place because we deal with cardiopulmonary bypass um, every day in that unit. So uh, part of our protocol is the first 48 to 72 hours they'll be in our cardiovascular intensive care unit. By that point, we're usually over the early post-operative um, cardiovascular changes and we're focusing more on the, the lungs and the immunosuppression and uh, rehabbing and getting these people up and moving along and so then generally they'll transfer out of the CVICU in 48 to 72 hours. Um, as George said our goal we're very aggressive uh, and we can do this if we're in good shape going into the operation but we're very aggressive about trying to get these kids uh, extubated so they have the sick kids have a very long operation bypass transplant yet uh, about 70% of our kids will be able to extubate within 24 hours of the operation. They'll have a bronchoscopy um, before that, so even if they're not getting extubated, they're gonna have a bronchoscopy within 24 hours of the operation, clear the airway of secretions, assess the mucosa and the perfusion of the lungs, um, but really working very hard um, to get these kids extubated. And um, this is part of our preoperative teaching for the kids and the families, uh, that this is what we're gonna expect of you, um, this is what we're going to try um, and achieve. Uh, but if we can get them extubated on the, on the first day, then by the next day they're out of bed in a chair, and hopefully by the third day we're up and moving around uh, out of bed. Um, so we really try to push these, these kids along. Um, in the immediate post-operative period in the cardiovascular intensive care unit, it's really uh, watching the hemodynamics. As I mentioned, we'll use... Uh, vasopressor agents to help us with the blood pressure because we're really trying to limit volume. All these kids will need some volume, but um, 
really trying to avoid big volume boluses and becoming very positive from a volume standpoint because all that's going to end up in your new lungs and so very careful about that and managing uh, volume and, and our blood product administration. Um, the um, And of course we've already uh, started the immunosuppressive agents and we'll, we'll talk about that here uh, in a second. Um, so by a year they're on um daily prednisone, but at a very low dose, usually 0.15 milligrams per kilo. Um, we titrate the uh, tacro levels down very slowly over time, and the mycophenolate, we, we also, unlike many programs, have done therapeutic drug monitoring and adjust uh, the medication to make sure that we're getting um, uh, detectable levels, uh, but avoiding toxic levels. We think this helps for uh, the long term. Thank you, Dr. Mallory. What is the current long-term outlook after pediatric lung transplantation? Uh, this is uh, obviously very important, um, and uh, Jeff's contribution to our approach has been e extremely important. Um, uh, one of the things that's become even clearer to me um, after 27 years in the field is that many families um, come into the transplant situation with um, uh, unrealistic expectations. It is true that the child with cystic fibrosis will never have uh, CF in their lungs again, uh, but there are a new host of uh, very important and potentially serious and life-ending complications that occur. For me, it's really remarkable to see these kids who pre-transplant are really very miserable uh, and their quality of life is so poor and what you can uh, offer them in terms of uh, quality of life and, and what they're going to be able to get out there and do. And I'll just reemphasize what George said is that our anticipation is not that we're going to do a transplant and these kids are going to go home and, and live in a bubble. Our anticipation is you're going to get a transplant, you're going to do well, you're going to go back uh, to doing things other kids do, getting back out there, doing going to school, playing sports, whatever it is you want to do, but uh, get them back uh, to leading um, relatively, I guess, normal lives, but getting back out there and doing it. And it really is remarkable to see um, what can happen. I'm also going to reemphasize uh, George's comment about education of the family uh, and the team. Um, these are a lot of complicated issues. We spend a lot of time with the families uh, making sure they understand uh, what we're trying to achieve, the, the importance of uh, nutrition rehab, the importance of them being involved, the importance of taking your medicines uh, forever. And uh, we emphasize this in our adolescent population too, where they're uh, at some point going to be responsible for their own care. So uh, I think that cannot be um, uh, overstated the, the education that goes on uh, for these families. Well, Dr. Mallory and Dr. Heinley, thank you so much for talking to me today. Uh, for more information about this topic, Dr. Heinley and Dr. Mallory have co-authored a chapter on pediatric lung and heart lung transplantation in the fourth edition of Pediatric Cardiac Surgery, edited by Constantine Mavrudis and Carl Backer. And thank you again for talking to me today. Thanks, Brandy. Thank you, Brandy.